Dozens of Drug Enforcement Administration agents are on the job without having taken a mandatory polygraph examination, or they failed the test. This according to a look-see by the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General. For more on what's happened since this discovery, Inspector General Michael Horowitz joins me in studio. Mr. Horowitz, good to have you back, as always. Great to be here again, Tom. And you have issued a memorandum of concern. That's a kind of urgency document, correct? That's right. This is something that we issue uh, um, when we have an ongoing audit, but we think there's something very important that we need to get to the Attorney General, to the Congress, to the public, to let him know of a particularly serious problem we found. What tipped you off to this? Was it a type of whistleblower complaint? Yeah, so we got a complaint from a concerned individual who uh, came forward and said, you should be looking at these policies. Nothing specific to what we ultimately found, but general concern and pointing us in the right direction. And the policy changed dramatically in 2019 for the DEA concerning the use of polygraphs. What happened then? So in 2019, the DEA's acting administrator announced a policy that all special agents, intelligence research specialists, diversion investigators, and forensic chemists had to take polygraphs and pass them, which the FBI had already done, other members of the intelligence community routinely do, but DEA hadn't been doing. And that's kind of ironic. I thought that polygraph science was sort of discredited, but I guess not. No, it's not discredited. In fact, it's used uh, frequently for job applicants, for renewals of top security and other clearances. Um, And also, for example, when we do administrative investigations, the FBI and the Inspector General's office use them on occasion in certain circumstances to assess an individual's credibility. So, in other words, DEA was late to the game in making the mandatory for employment in these areas. Yes, DEA should have done that earlier. In 2019, the acting administrator uh, implemented the policy, and announced just a, the policy. Just a detail question, diversion, that has to do with the legal drugs DEA also administers oversight of? Right. Those are the regulatory side of DEA. DEA has obviously the criminal side that the public probably is generally aware of, which the special agents, law enforcement. These are the folks who check on pharmacies, doctors, et cetera, to make sure that prescribing and the chemicals that are used in the drugs are handled appropriately. All right. So you looked at the policy and then something led you to look at, are they following the policy? Tell us what happened there and what you found. So we started reviewing uh, the records as part of our audit and had this tipped off information uh, from a concerned individual. And we found that, in fact, while the acting administrator had announced the policy in 2019, DEA actually hadn't implemented it effectively because what they were doing is rather than using it on applicants going forward, they decided to look backward and see what existing job announcements were prior to 2019 that were still open and to hire off of those. And they, some people took the position at DEA that if you, as long as you hired off a job announcement before 2019 that was still open, you didn't have to comply with the acting administrator's position. That sounds like a very narrow type of uh, almost a, an excuse That's a little bit of an acrobatic movement to get around what seemed like a pretty clear announcement from the acting administrator. And you also found that quite a number of people were in fact hired without having had the test administered. That's correct. We found 77 employees had been hired who hadn't passed the exams, in fact, had shown deception. And we found three who hadn't taken the complete set of exams, both the national security side and the suitability side. Right. If you have a reaction that shows you're not being truthful on the test, then you are 
automatically disqualified for three years, right, from DEA. And so what happens at that point is they stop the exam and they ask the individual why they indicated. Sometimes it's deception. Sometimes it's tactics used to evade or it's believed that is occurring. And so you stop the poly at that point and you ask the individual what's going on. And you might resume it if it's a temporary issue But if it's determined that you have, in fact, used countermeasures to try and deceive or you've, in fact, clearly failed, uh, you're right. Then you are out. You should have been disqualified from being hired at that point. What's a countermeasure in a lie detector test, like taking a tranquilizer so you won't get a bodily reaction to a a question? Right. Or, Or trying not to breathe normally or act normally to try and control the circumstances around the, the polygraph. Yeah, no card counting, in other words. Correct. Well, so these are people that had had the test, might have failed, but were hired anyway. The DEA said by virtue of having started their application under the pre-imposition of the policy. Correct. In fact, some did fail. We're speaking with Michael Horowitz. He is Inspector General of the Justice Department. Golly, I mean, how high up the chain did the knowledge of this go? I guess the question is the administrator at the time of the hires, I presume would have said, no, you can't do that because here's the policy. Yeah, and we we have no reason to believe that the acting administrator was aware of it. The purpose of issuing this, though, was to get the policy corrected right away. And these people that are on the payroll now working in forensic chemistry, diversion, intelligence, or as special agents, do they have to be dismissed or what happens to them? Well, that's uh, one of the key questions. It's unclear whether they can be dismissed at this point. So one of the recommendations we made to DEA was that they look to mitigate the harm that could come from these employees being on uh, the payroll. For example, there we identify in here uh, individuals who failed the national security portion of the exam, um, who failed the drug use portion of the exam. And so there clearly needs to be some steps taken to mitigate the harm that individuals who are on the payroll but perhaps can't be dismissed now under federal law are put in proper position so that any potential risks they pose are, in fact, mitigated. I imagine there's a risk management approach they could take to this. For example, you said there's a national security part of the exam, and if someone could be suspect of having ties to the cartel, that's one thing. On the drug use thing, well, yes, I had some pot six months ago. That's another thing. Right, right. These these are wide-ranging issues. Some of them, for example, um, also failed on questions about whether they were truthful in their applications. Um, and so there, for example, you would want it to mitigate it, try and understand what they might have been untruthful about. If it's, I got my city wrong of where I was born, maybe not so significant. Obviously, if it's prior criminal activity, that's a big problem. Right, sure. Yes, I distributed cocaine and loved it for 10 years, but I've given it up now. And so you probably still wouldn't want to work for the DEA, nor would they want you. Well, two questions. First, have they corrected this situation for current and future hires? Yes. As you might guess, one the first recommendation we made is implement the policy that was announced in 2019 completely. Don't leave any loopholes or exceptions. As we were writing this up, DEA told us they were doing that already. Um, so that was obviously good news. They also told us with regard to DEA task force officers, where DEA has a rule that if a task force officer, in other words, a state or local law enforcement officer who joins a DEA 
comprised task force, with which there are many. Mm-hmm. The DA has a policy that if those individuals fail polygraph, they're not allowed to be on the task force, period. They're obviously not DEA employees. That's not something that DEA has to live with. They can deal with it. We made a recommendation that they implement that as well, and they told us they were doing that too. Yeah, so they generally were probably horrified by the findings themselves and and have been moving to correct it. And just out of curiosity, how long does the test take? What kinds of questions do they ask? There are the two parts to the polygraph questions. There's the national security side, which, as you might guess, is focused on contacts with foreign individuals, how you've handled classified materials previously, your connections to foreign terrorist groups or relatives who might be connected to it, things like that. The suitability polygraph is all about prior drug use, criminal activity, association with gangs, things like that that would trigger concerns about people being involved in criminal cases, for example. And just out of curiosity, does the security clearance process ever coincide with the this particular polygraph process? It, it should. In fact, what we found in, in some instances is that DEA hadn't adequately documented what had occurred. And so when some of these applications made their way to the hiring panels, the hiring panels wouldn't have known that this issue existed. And that's the concern, is that the security division, those who deal with security clearances, hiring panels, all of those folks understand accurately what has occurred in the hiring process. Yeah, because in the national security clearance process, I don't think there's a polygraph test as part of that, just a 100-page form. There is, but but the intelligence community regularly does use polygraphs for applicants and re-upping your security clearance. Yeah, so the potential situation for at least some people is they could have clearance and yet have failed a polygraph test at the DEA. That's exactly right. In fact, we did find examples of that as we you know, highlight in this report that certain individuals did not pass their national security clearance uh, polygraph. Um, and presumably, since uh, employees at the DEA generally need security clearances to do their jobs, those individuals, uh, there may be individuals working in wow. classified positions that are that failed the security clearance. So they were doing a little bit of polygraph shopping until they could find, find a way in. So that that's precisely the problem. You, you can't have that occur in a situation where the intelligence community expects individuals to have passed the polygraph. Michael Horowitz is Inspector General at the Justice Department. As always, thanks so much. Great to be here again, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader, and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred 
that did change my trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed, and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders not having to hide who I was at work made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization change your path later in life. Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches 
people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those 
who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is, is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision it's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Poland, who... I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that 
especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.